Today's sermon will fit into what we at Crossway sometimes call our Purpose and Pursuit series. Uh, These are our convictions from Scripture on how we are to conduct our ministry as a church, or you might say our philosophy of ministry. What convictions lend themselves to a healthy church, are vital for a healthy church? You might think of it almost like the rudder in a ship. Uh, The rudder is, from what I understand and my very small knowledge of boats, is that there's something of a plank that uh, is underneath the boat that manipulates the water, that directs the water in one way or the other. And so this massive ship, the direction of the ship is determined by the rudder. And so likewise, the sort of ministry decisions we make, the sort of uh, the sort of uh, results of why we do church, quote unquote, the way we do church, is ultimately based on certain convictions we have, whether we're conscious of those or not. And so that's what we focus on in this series, our purpose and pursuits. And I trust for sweet communion who's with us today that this will be of, uh, of benefit for you guys as well, um, seeing that we share the same Bible and ultimately hopefully the same convictions on these things. And our our message today, if you were to summarize it, and if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, it can be boiled down into this sentence. The sermon in the sentence is this. We must take care to build our churches with methods suitable to the foundation, which is Christ. We must take care to build our churches with methods suitable to their foundation, which is none other than Christ. And so let me show you where I'm getting that. Uh, Today's passage is uh, specifically focused on chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Sam read a larger context, which I think is really important to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. But focus just for now, partway through verse 10 and then into verse 11, Paul says, Let each one take care how he builds upon it, that is the building, the church. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We must be careful, in other words, how we build the church, how we conduct ministry as a church, seek to pursue our mission, making sure that it is in accordance with the church's one and only foundation. There is no other foundation. And that foundation is Christ, he says. But what exactly does he mean by Christ? Okay, he's obviously referring to Jesus, uh, identified as the Christ, the Messiah. But in context, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, as he's talking about his ministry and what this sort of foundation that he's talking about that he laid when he came to Corinth and he preached, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, what Paul has in view here when he says the foundation is Christ, he means the message of salvation as accomplished and found in Christ. Or what we sometimes say, the gospel. Gospel just means good news or the good proclamation. And as Christians used it, they meant specifically the good message about what God had done in Christ to save all those who trust in him. If you go to the end of the book, we can actually get Paul's very own definition of the gospel. What is this gospel? What is the message of the cross? 1 Corinthians 15, 
He says in verse 1, Now, Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you currently stand, and by which you are being saved, the very power of salvation. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, that gospel, unless, of course, you believed in vain, but assuming you believe it genuinely and you hold fast to it, this is the gospel that he delivered, the gospel that saves him. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, very similar to the Apostles' Creed we recited, and that he appeared, and then he goes on to explain that appearance to the other apostles and himself. But notice there, the center of the gospel is Christ dying for our sins and raising from the dead three days later. What does it mean for Christ to die for our sins? We, we sometimes talk similarly to this using the word for when we say something like, if I'm going out to eat with you or maybe you, have, you sign up for the table fellowship and you go out to eat at a restaurant, if that's what you choose, and you say, hey, I'll pay the bill. I'll pay for the meal. Okay, what do we mean by that? We mean, we mean I'm going to make the payment that, that meets the demands here. Like we, we ate, now we got to pay for it. I'm going to give my credit card to cover the bill, to pay for it. Or we can sometimes say that someone did the time for their crime. Their crime required that they serve some time. There's some demands now. There's justice to be satisfied. And their time pays for it. It covers it. It meets it. And so likewise, Paul is saying that our sins put us in a debt before God. Something is owed to God. God in his holiness demands that humans worship and serve him perfectly. That's where we were created to be, his image bearers who served him and worshiped him and obeyed him perfectly. Not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, our feelings, our very condition. And we have not done that. As Paul will go on to say, in Adam we all die. In Adam we become sinners and we sin and we therefore incur God's wrath. We incur God's judgment. But God in his grace and in his love, he sends his son to become a human being so that he might enter into our place, dying on the cross, and as he says, he died for our sins. Just as in the Old Testament, when they were offering a sacrificial animal, the, the priest would lay his hand on the animal and they would confess the sins over the animal. And then the, the animal would be slain. The wages of sin is death. So Christ, it's as if our sin is confessed over him. And he goes to the cross, and when he dies, he's not dying for his own sin. He lived sinlessly, so that when he dies for sin, it's not his own that he's dying for. The wages of sin is death, but the wages were our wages. And so he takes that for us. And it's for all those, as, as Paul says, unless you believed in vain, that is, it's through faith, it's through believing, not trusting in yourself, but trusting in Christ and his work that one receives his salvation. And so that's the foundation that Paul has in view here. That's the foundation that we as a church need to believe. That's the foundation if you are outside of God's church, if you are not a believer today, that we want to see you come to believe. 
And so let's now look at the entire image here. We'll read verses 10 through 15 again. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, that is Paul, he, like a skilled master builder, he says, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care then how they build upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, him, him crucified, the gospel. Now, if any of those people who build on it, if they build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, whatever they build with each one's work, those materials will become manifest. For the day that is judgment day, the day of the Lord, will disclose it. It's going to make it known. How you build is going to become known because it will be revealed by fire. A common image in scripture, fire, as sort of this thing that purges and reveals in the judgment. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but as, only as through fire. So let me break down the imagery for us. So we're all tracking. I'll go step by step here. First, we see that there's a building. Okay, if we were to read in verse 16 and 17, we see specifically that that building is the temple. And this is something we see in the New Testament, that the church is depicted as the final end time temple, where, where God finally meets with man through the sacrifice and priesthood of Christ. It's the place where God dwells among his people, Christ pouring out his spirit and indwelling among them that way. And we see that even in the book of Corinthians uh, in chapter 3 here and chapter 6 as well as elsewhere throughout the New Testament. But the building here is the church. Paul is concerned with the church and how the church is built. God's temple is built. And God takes it very seriously. It is his temple. Then there's a foundation, and as we saw, the foundation of this temple is Christ, the message of the cross, the gospel. Paul says that other builders, however, come and they build upon his gospel foundation. Paul is the skilled master builder who by God's grace laid the foundation, came to Corinth and preached the gospel, but others come and they build on that foundation that Paul has laid. And these are then other gospel ministers. These are leaders in the Corinthian church. As we read, Apollos, uh, he, he serves a role or other leaders that Paul has mentioned in the opening chapter. So other people who are building on Paul's ministry, particularly ministry leaders, church leaders. And then he gives building instructions. He says that these leaders must take care how they build, making sure that it fits the foundation. Leaders in the church must take care how they conduct their ministry, in other words, making sure that it is in accord with the gospel, the only foundation we have. I think of uh, when I go and I play with my kids, we have magnetiles. Any parents here with their kids have magnetiles? It's like a big thing right now with kids. Okay, if you're not familiar, they're like these different geometric shapes that have magnets on the borders so that you can attach them together and build things, and they all stick together neatly with magnets. Okay, when I was growing up, we had Lincoln Logs as well. And Lincoln Logs, I'm sure everyone here knows those, they, they have like little uh, divots in them, I guess you could say, where the pieces attach together and Lincoln Logs can build on top of Lincoln Logs quite well and it creates a relatively stable unit, just like magnetiles build a relatively stable unit. But if someone came 
and, and, and say I laid a foundation of magnetiles and then one of my children came and they tried to build on it with Lincoln logs, the, 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 the building work doesn't fit the foundation anymore. It's not going to be stable. Those aren't meant to go together. Like, sure, you can build something. You can build a church with other materials. Sure, you can do that. But that, it doesn't fit the foundation. It's not ultimately going to last. Those things are not meant to go together. How we do ministry has to fit with our foundation. And so Paul says that there's a fire, this, this imagery of judgment we see in the Old Testament and New. That means one's building materials are going to be tested. And so he portrays this as the building sort of catching on fire. God will judge ministers by how they build the church, in other words. And there are then different building materials. First, there are those who build with low-quality materials that are flammable. This would be the, the latter three in the list, wood, hay, and stubble. Those are things that burn up. This work won't make it through the fire. Because their ministry is not based on the gospel, it won't amount to anything at the end of the day. They won't have anything to show for it. Nonetheless, he says that they will escape God's eternal judgment, similar to one who is running out and escaping a burning building, sort of by the skin of their teeth, you might say. As the building goes up in flames, their work will burn up. They'll have nothing to show for it, but they, nonetheless, as a believer in Jesus, are saved. They make it through. Other builders, though, other leaders and ministers in the church, they build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone. This is valuable material. This is stuff that will survive a fire. These represent those ministers who faithfully build the church in accordance with the gospel. And at the end of the day, they will have something to show for all of their ministry. Things of actual substance that will last into eternity. And so they will receive a reward for their work. And so I've been using this language, helping you understand by saying, building on the church, doing ministry in accordance with the gospel. But what does that mean? Let's, let's take it out of the fuzzy realm, doing ministry that fits the foundation, doing ministry that accords with the gospel foundation. What exactly does that mean? And this is where the context, I think, is so important. And that's why Sam read it for us. As we read chapter 1 and chapter 2, those parts, you'll notice that Paul emphasizes over and over that this gospel is quote-unquote foolishness by worldly standards or by worldly wisdom. Now, Paul is not saying that it's actually foolish, and he's not saying that worldly wisdom is actually wise. He's saying by human perception, by those who are of the flesh, those who are not enabled to see the truth by the Spirit, he goes on to say in chapter 2, what does it look like? And he says it, it's foolish. We might say by foolish, we might say it goes against human sensibility. It goes against the way that we think things ought to be. Okay, he says Jews demand a sign, and, and so it's a stumbling block for them. Why? For the Jewish person, uh, the unbelieving Jew that is, when they hear the gospel of a, of a crucified Messiah, their vision of a Messiah was that he wouldn't be crucified. In fact, the Mosaic law says that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. It is a very antithesis to think that the Messiah would have died on a tree. Paul says in Galatians 3, that's, that's precisely the point. He was cursed by God, but for us. But that message is, is counterintuitive. 
And so it's a stumbling block. The Jewish unbeliever trips over that message. They hear it and it offends them. Likewise, he says to the Gentile, to the Greek, the Greeks in those days, they would have really valued wisdom. Okay, think of the philosophers in Greek, even as we know of like ancient Greece. They loved philosophy and they, they almost had like a system of traveling celebrity philosophers. Okay, very, we, don't, we don't have traveling celebrity philosophers. Those aren't the people that we make into celebrities, sort of the opposite today. But then they, they would have made their philosophers the celebrities and they would come in and they would talk and the, the, the Greek people love to, uh, to hear them talk, the economy, right? Like they love to hear them speak wax and, and go eloquent on all these fancy things. And, and the message of God becoming a human being to die on a cross doesn't really fit eloquent, fancy, human wisdom type ideas, right? Especially a lot of the Greeks, they would have viewed the human body as something that we long to escape at death and reach the immortality of the soul. So why would God become a dirty, gross human, take on a human body? And not only that, but then die? That's all, that all screams weakness. Yes, it does. And so it was an offense to them that God would embrace our weakness, and so Paul goes out of his way then to spell three ways that the gospel is foolish, quote-unquote foolish. He says it's a foolish message in verses 18 through 25. It, it trips them up. It offends. It has foolish recipients in verses 26 to 31. In other words, not many of you are wise by human standards, but God called, that is, the people that he chose to save don't meet human expectations. God saves an interesting group of people. Not always the, 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 the well-respected in society. And we know that. As, as, as that was one of the critiques of Christianity in the first century. In the first century, people had a very low view of women. And one of the things that they critiqued Christianity for was that it, was, it attracted women. Or that it attracted slaves. And Christianity is not embarrassed of that fact. The gospel is for all. But then thirdly... Uh, we see a foolish preaching. So not only a foolish message and foolish recipients, but foolish preaching. The the way that Paul preached, he said, I didn't come with eloquence. I came with foolishness. And why is Paul so concerned about this then? He's concerned with ministry methods that would effectively empty the cross of its power. Notice in verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, where he says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The power would, would, would look like it would belong in his eloquence and not the message. If one of my daughters draws me a picture and they are three years old and five, year, five years old, you can imagine by most worldly standards, they are not going to be making, their picture's not gonna make it into the Milwaukee Art Museum, right? It's not a good picture by those standards, by the standards of art. But as, the, as a dad, I love it, right? But if I wanted to present it and I said, you know what, that picture is a little bit embarrassing. Let me put it in a really fancy frame that's all like super fancy and ornate and I really dress it up. What can happen is that the frame would actually then overshadow the picture. It doesn't fit the actual picture. It actually distracts from it and overshadows it. And that's what Paul is saying. Like His ministry method didn't overshadow the gospel. The gospel actually is a display of weakness. It's foolishness. I didn't come with a fancy frame that actually is, that actually is disjointed with the message. My preaching actually fit 
the foolishness of the message. And why does Paul care? He cares because he wants the glory ultimately to go to God. In verse 29, chapter 1, verse 29, he says, So that no human might boast in the presence of God. But verse 30, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If God saves by our foolishness and by unintuitive, uh, an unintuitive gospel, that means all the glory goes to him. He didn't save the world through their own wisdom where they could boast and say, yeah, we were wise. Through philosophy, we figured it out. He saved through an unexpected gospel. And so to tie this into chapter three then, what does it mean to build with wood, hay, and stubble? It means building the church, conducting one's ministry with methods that reflect worldly wisdom, worldly sentiments, the way the world would think is attractive or compelling. Building with gold, silver, and precious stones, then, is ministry that does not accord with the sensibilities of our human culture and wisdom, but matches the actual foolishness of the gospel. In other words, ministry that actually produces that which will last into eternity, what Paul calls gold, silver, and precious stones, is ministry that makes genuine followers of Jesus. It's, it's disciples that will make it into eternity. Not all the gimmicks or, or, or fluff that sometimes happens. It's not, we, it's not that we're building people who are just attracted to and adherence of worldly methods or wisdom, but we want to build genuine followers of Jesus as made known in God's foolish, offensive gospel. I remember when I was growing up, I was probably in high school, there was a man in my church uh, that I, I played on the music team, and he played, he led our, our music team. He was probably my, he was my father's age. And he said to me once, I don't remember what we're talking about, but this, talking about, but this stuck with me. He said, what you win one with, you win them too. What you win people with, the thing that, they're, they're, that, that draws them in, that's the real reason that they're there. That's the thing that you have won them too. And Paul understands that as well in, in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He said, my speech and my message, my preaching, the way I preached, they weren't implausible words of wisdom that the Corinthians would have liked. They would have ate it up. But my preaching was in demonstration of the spirit and power. It had to be, you had, it, the only reason it was powerful and worked was because the spirit was at work, not because Paul did anything fancy. So that their faith then would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, if we want to make genuine followers of Jesus, the way to do so is not through ministry methods that reflect worldly wisdom, things that the world finds attractive or fits worldly sensibilities, worldly judgment. That doesn't make followers of Jesus. What that makes is it makes adherence to those worldly methods. The only thing that makes genuine followers of Jesus is the message about Jesus, the gospel. And so our ministry must keep Jesus central. It must foreground him, not just assume him in the background, but push him to the front. It's not seeking to draw people by any other means where they're not really a follower of Jesus, they're just a fan of something we do or an adherent of certain methods we have. And thus our ministry methods should also reflect the weakness, the very foolishness of the gospel we proclaim. In chapter 13 of uh, 1 Corinthians, you are probably familiar with this passage. 
the love chapter, as we say, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm just like a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I, if I do this and I do that, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. You know that chapter? I think we could adapt it to his message here. Maybe say something like this. You know, if as a church we have an amazing website, an awesome band, the perfect lighting to, to showcast the stage, but if these things don't actually make disciples of Jesus, which they in and of themselves don't, they're mere wood, hay, and stubble. If we have cool pastors who are trendy and they dress in style and they can deliver a sermon with the eloquence of the best TED Talk, but if those things don't actually make disciples of Jesus, which they don't, they're mere wood, hay, and stubble. We could have a really nice building and we could even have like a coffee shop and a coffee bar and like free lattes. But if these things don't make disciples of Jesus and they don't, it's wood, hay, and stubble. We could have all the programs. We could have like a super fun children's ministry where they play awesome games and they love it. And, and a youth group with tons of fun events, but we're not actually making disciples of Jesus in our ministries then it's all wood, hay, and stubble. We must take care, Paul says, to build our churches with methods suitable to the foundation, which is the foolish message, quote-unquote foolish message of Jesus Christ crucified. It's a cross-shaped ministry. It's a foolish ministry by worldly standards. And so what is the, what is the worldly wisdom that maybe we experience today. As we said, in Corinth, it was sort of eloquent philosophical speech. You had these celebrity personalities. That's why in the beginning of the book, this is, why he, this is where the argument comes from. You may remember in the beginning of the book, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I, I follow Peter. They were, they were doing that with their Christian leaders. They're saying, hey, I want to follow the celebrity, the Christian celebrity that I want. And they were acting like carnal people, he says, in the beginning of chapter 3. They're, they're, they're thinking about ministry in the way, in, in the Corinthian-wise way, the way of the world. How do, what are maybe ways that we in our context in America uh, would be attracted to a sort, of, sort, a sort of wisdom? What would wisdom, quote-unquote worldly wisdom, look like for us? There's probably a lot of answers, but I think one of the primary ones is sort of adopting a mentality that is reflective of corporate America and our celebrity culture where maybe we want churches that are big and polished and flashy and attractive and, and we sort of like, everything's a performance. The preacher is performing, the band is performing. We want to make sure it's unoffensive. As a society, we really like being nice. Nice is like the supreme virtue in America. It's really personality driven. People are attracted to the preacher and that's the reason they come. Basically, if you ask the average person on the street, what would you want in a church? What makes a good, successful church? What would they say? And these may be things that we're tempted to as well, maybe to lesser or greater degrees. You might put it this way. I, I was thinking about this, and I want you to imagine like three portraits, uh, three different types of churches that I think, I don't have, I'm not trying to describe any one particular church, but three sort of uh, theoretical churches that I think you, could, you would fall into this sort of wood, hay, and stubble. The first is sort of the bells and whistles megachurch. Okay? This is a church that has awesome graphics. They have a sweet video that plays as the, as the preacher is walking up. The band is like professionally paid. They have perfect lighting. The pastor's personality is awesome. Way cooler than me. Okay? 
But at the end of the day, it's wood, hay, and stubble. Or here's another one, which is not so much the wisdom of this age, but I think still fits the idea of like, you've, got, you've lost track of the actual mission of the church and the foundation. This would be kind of like maybe the older church that's been around for a really long time, and it's the what I call the distracted in its traditions church, or the mission adrift church. Maybe this is the church that has tons of committees where they're really busy doing a lot of things, which is basically just perpetuating their traditions. This is the way we've done things, and we're always going to do things this way, but it's being consumed with a lot of things that aren't actually disciple-making. Or maybe they start to have controversies over the stereotypical color of the rug and things that aren't actually related to the mission. You're not doing ministry built on the foundation anymore. You've gotten, you've drifted. Or the third church is the toned down the offense progressive church. This is the church that rejects or avoids the Bible's teaching that goes against current cultural sensibilities. We got to sort of make the Bible attractive, sort of classical liberalism repackaged for today. Anything the Bible says that is offensive, let's just soften that. Let's not talk about that. Or let's actually teach something that goes against what the Bible says. I think those are maybe, those are three uh, maybe obvious examples that came to my mind, and I'm sure there are more. But I also don't want to assume that our own churches are immune to any of this temptation. The question for any church is, is your ministry sensible to worldly standards? Is the way we do things sensible by worldly standards? It should be sensible according to a foolish gospel. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Cross in Christian Ministry, which is a reflection on uh, 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians 4 ministry, he argues in the book as a whole that the gospel, the cross, should not only shape what we minister, what we preach, the content, our message, but it should also shape how we do ministry. Our ministry should be cross-shaped, not only cross-centered in what we proclaim, but cross-shaped in terms of the nature of our ministry. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, he writes this particular, uh, or he writes on this passage, this in particular. He says, this passage ought to be extremely sobering to all who are engaged in vocational ministry. And I'll, I'll pause there. The passage is about ministry leaders. I, I hope it's assumed all of us do nonetheless bear responsibility in how we collectively build the church. He continues, though, it is possible to, quote unquote, build the church with such shoddy materials that at the last day, the judgment, you will have nothing to show for your labor. People may come, they may feel helped, they may join in corporate worship, they may serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated passionate spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. It is not that we shall refuse any practical help from those who have something to say about technique or sociological profiles. Rather, we remain utterly committed to the centrality of the cross 
not just at vague theoretical levels, but in all our strategy and practical decisions. We will be fearful of adopting approaches that might empty the cross of its power. And the only approval we shall seek is not, I'm adding this, is not what people think, whether it fits the wisdom, but it's him who tests the quality of each builder's work on the last day. That's the judge. That's the only opinion we care about. But I think we can be tempted to this. We, we can be tempted to go after the wood, hay, and the stubble. And why can we be tempted? Well, three things that came to my mind is that wood, hay, and stubble looks nice. Like I know in the description he gives, it doesn't sound nice, but what it represents, right? The flashy stuff. Man, it looks nice. We, the grass is always greener, too, when, when maybe feel, things feel foolish and, they, and it's hard in, in your church context. You look at the church that does have the sort of wisdom of the age and it looks nice. Or maybe it seems more effective. It looks like it gets things done. Like maybe more people are attracted to that. Maybe it seems to produce better results. Thirdly, gospel-centered foolish ministry is hard. We... In the midst of it, we start to doubt its effectiveness. It's foolish, so they, it trips people up, as he says. It's an offense to a lot of people. And so maybe our trust in God starts to waver when things get hard, and we, we begin to want to take things into our own hands. We want to say, well, I know, I, this isn't working. The way God has laid it out isn't working. The ordinary means of grace, preaching the word, discipling people through prayerful application of the word and the gospel, it's, that's not working. Let me, let me try these methods over here. The implications of this are, are, are three, I think. First, this means that perceived fruitfulness in places where it looks like there's a lot of results, it may be, it may be fruitfulness, but it also may be nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. Furthermore, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that faithfulness does not necessarily even mean fruitfulness. Remember Isaiah 6, the, the famous missionary passage, who will go for us, and or Isaiah says, here am I, send me. When God commissions him, God says, you're going to go and preach so that people won't hear and that they won't believe. His ministry was actually going to harden their hearts as it was a ministry of bringing God's judgment, essentially. And so obviously we want to be fruitful. We want to make disciples of Jesus. That's our mission statement. But our, our job is to simply be faithful. God's job is the results. We leave the results to him. Thirdly, this doesn't mean that we don't care about being winsome. It doesn't mean that we, are trying, that we don't try to present the gospel in compelling ways or that we are going to be needlessly offensive. Like, we should try to avoid needless offense, okay? So hopefully, here are those qualifications, right? We can do things well. We can do things in excellent ways. We can have nice things. Like, those things aren't inherently wrong. I even think about when, what Paul says in chapter 9, verse 22, of this book where he says, I have become all things to all people. There's a sense of like what scholars call contextualization. You, you make the gospel fit the context, not by compromising the gospel, but by fitting the different cultural contexts. Or Paul in Acts 17, when he's in Athens, he preaches a sermon in Acts 17 that fits their sort of categories, the way they thought. Okay, so we still contextualize. We try to be win winsome. But we are principled 
not pragmatic at the end of the day. It means we trust God as we do ministry according to biblical convictions, according to principles from scripture, and we leave the results to him. We don't soften or compromise biblical practices or teaching based on our judgment, thinking, you know, maybe this won't be effective and we kind of need to adjust things. It's not our job to tamper with what scripture says. We trust in God to work through the ordinary means of grace as he laid them out in scripture. What I mean by that is the preaching of the word, prayer, just the regular mundane things that God says to do in ministry. We resist the temptation to implement methods that reflect worldly wisdom. As one person said, I'm not sure where this quote came from, but I heard it once, the word of God is more than capable of doing the work of God. The word of God is more, of, more than capable of doing the work of God. And so four takeaways, four takeaways. How should we respond to this message? First, we keep the message of the cross, the gospel, central. Not just theoretically, it's very popular to say gospel-centered ministry now, but we really make it central in our churches. We make it the foundation. We foreground Christ. Second, we resist the temptation to tone down the gospel in an effort to make it more palatable. We don't water it down. We don't sort of uh, avoid the offense that is actually there. Thirdly, we resist temptations to uh, sort of worldly wisdom ministry methods. We rely on the ordinary means of grace, and we keep trusting. We leave the results to him. We keep trusting. The results are in his hands. What he demands of us is faithfulness, as we adhere to his word in Scripture. And then fourthly, we avoid mission drift. We avoid getting distracted with things that aren't actually the mission of making disciples by the power of the gospel. There's a lot of things we can get distracted with, especially as, as a, the, the longer a church exists, the more sort of traditions and sort of habits you have, and then we sort of just forget why we do the things we do. If we ever have a ministry that no longer serves the purpose of making disciples, we should cut it, no matter how much you like that ministry. Because the point isn't sustaining certain ministries and systems and programs. The point is making followers of Jesus. And so we keep the focus on making disciples through the gospel. We must take care to build our churches with methods suitable to their foundation, which is the foolish, quote-unquote, foolish message of Christ crucified. There's no other foundation for the church other than Christ. There's no other form our ministry must take but cross-shaped. And there's no other way the world will see it except foolish. And as we come to the Lord's table and the music team can come forward, if the gospel ultimately depends on Christ then, and it does, he is the foundation. As chapter 2 says, it's only by the spirit working. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God, only the one who has the spirit. If all these things ultimately depend not on us, but on Christ, it doesn't mean, that means it doesn't, it do, sorry, that means it doesn't depend on our skill, our ingenuity, our ability to win people over with our personalities, our fancy programs. That's a great relief, isn't it? To be able to rest in the promise of the gospel that we simply stay the course. It doesn't mean it's easy. We work, we labor to make disciples, but by his methods. And we stay the course and we rest, leaving the results up to him. We rest ultimately to let him do the work. I think of, we're going to be preaching through Mark soon, and there's a parable in Mark 
where uh, Jesus is explaining how the gospel sows or gospel grows even as it's rejected by many. And it's like the person going out and scattering seed and they don't know how, but plants grow. Like I can't explain to you all the ins and outs of how a plant grows, but if I throw seed out into my yard, there'll be growth. And likewise, our job is simply to scatter the seed, we go back to our bed, we rest, and we let God do the work of growing. And the Lord's Supper is a picture of this, of this promise to us in the gospel. We have, we have two elements that, that are emblems of Jesus' death for us. It's a, it's a visible, tangible, dramatic portrayal of the gospel. That, that the bread is a, is a picture of his body, the cup, uh, his blood, him given over for us in death. He died for our sins. And so that's what we remember. We remember the gospel every Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the real reason why we are here, our foundation, and we, we remember the real method of our ministry. It is preaching the gospel. It's telling people of the gospel and applying it to their lives.